Convicted and Convinced, a message from God's Word for you. And now, here's Dr. Lloyd Willis with today's lesson. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Please bless it as we discuss it and read from it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Old Testament came to us, gathered together, written and gathered together over a period of about 1,200 years, from about 1,500 B.C. to about 300 B.C., and uh, the last book, the book of Malachi, uh, seems to have been written about 400 BC. The Jews divided these, or they fell rather naturally, into three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, in Hebrew, the name is the Torah for the first section. We call it the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. The second section was called the Nevi'im, which is the plural of the word prophet. And uh, that was divided into two sections. The former prophets were what we call history. Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. These are history written from a prophetic point of view. And uh, thirdly, oh, I'm sorry, uh, and after the former prophets are the latter prophets, the ones that we call prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Book of the Twelve, they called the Book of the Twelve uh, by that name, but it was twelve books in our count. The uh, third section was the Kutuvim, uh, which means literally the writings. So that's the rest of the books. Um, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and uh, Psalms, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, even Daniel was included there because he was more than a prophet. He was a prophet, but he was much more a statesman, etc. So uh, we have this amazing collection of books. And the Jews counted them as 24. We count them as 39, but it's actually exactly the same, just uh, combined in different ways in the, uh, in the uh, Torah or in the Hebrew scriptures. The collection is really authenticated or endorsed, might be a better word, by Jesus. That's the highest authority. Jesus used these books and thereby endorses them. And he was a good teacher. He passed his method on to the disciples, the apostles, and they used the Old Testament writings as God's word. The Hebrew councils recognized these things and uh, formally uh, referred to them as the scripture, the Hebrew scripture. Now, as the Christian church was developing, it, it fell rather naturally into three sections. The Western church, which rather soon switched to using Latin instead of Greek as it had at first, so that's the Western Church, and then there's the Eastern Church, or the Greek-speaking Church, and then the further Eastern Church, the Church of Mesopotamia, where Syriac was the language. So in these three sections of the Christian Church, the New Testament was gathered together and uh, preserved by the Church. They seem to have used a number of tests, 
we mentioned that uh, the Old Testament tests uh, are referred to, we uh, referred to them last week, they uh, are actually listed by Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, and uh, the New Testament criteria, how they measured the New Testament books, can be devised by reading the various uh, early writers of the Christian church. And this is the way it, it went. We just started this briefly last week, but I want to finish it. First of all, apostolicity. By this, there are six characteristics. And the first one is apostolicity. This didn't mean that a disciple had to make, or an apostle had to write the book, but it had to be written by either an apostle or one of the close associates of the apostles. So Luke and uh, Jude and... Uh, Mark uh, are writers of scripture. Um, it was more than, uh, more than just having your name attached to a book, however, one of the disciples or apostles' names, there uh, had to be pretty strong proof that this was really written by them. There were other books that claimed to be written by Peter and uh, Paul and others that in fact were not written by them. And so it, true apostolicity was the first test. It had to be written by an apostle or one of his close associates. The second test was that it had to contain the canon of truth. That's an interesting term that essentially means that the content of Christian faith, the teachings of Jesus and the content of Christian faith uh, had to be covered it had to, to uh, be summed up in, in these books if they were genuine books of, of the New Testament. The third one is Catholicity, which doesn't mean the Catholic Church. It means worldwide. That is, that these books had to be widely accepted. And, and in fact, there was debate in the first uh, couple of centuries. And uh, at first, the book of Hebrews was a bit uncertain in the West. They weren't too sure about that. They weren't sure who wrote it, and so they debated it. And likewise, the book of Revelation was debated in the East. But as time passed, the various branches of the church got together and, and recognized that these were genuine books, Hebrews, Revelation, and some of the smaller books like uh, Second and Third John. These were seen to be a part of the New Testament. So there were 27 books, and uh, these were agreed upon by uh, at least the third century. In, in usage, of course, they'd been, they'd been passed around and shared uh, before that, long before that. The uh, fourth test was that they had to be written during the period of incarnation, which meant uh, during the period of the life of Jesus and his disciples. And the last disciple to die was uh, John, who died pretty close to 100 AD. So any books written after that time would automatically be ruled out. The fifth of these uh, tests is a little subjective, but remember that there's six, six tests. They had to pass all of them. And so the fifth one is it had to be self-evidencing. That is... As a person read it, does it sound like the Word of God? Does it sound as though it has the, the quality to draw a person into a close relationship with God? If that was the case, 
then that was uh, one more test that it had passed. And the last one, number six, it had to be uh, approved by public worship. That is, when this book was used in public worship, and most of the books were not widely owned, and so in a church there may be just one copy of certain books, but uh, if, as this book was read in the church, it was seen to be, uh, to be God's word, and feeding and encouraging God's word, then that was one more test. And all six of these tests had to be passed. And that's apparently how the church handled, uh, how they came up with the 27 books. And Jesus trained the disciples well. He passed on his methodology. These are the Old Testament books, and now the New Testament books were uh, added to them as the, as the new um, writings from the time of Christ and subsequent. So in today's lesson, we're thinking particularly about how the New Testament views the Old Testament. And uh, of course, how much quoting is there? If you have a list, and there are many lists have been made of wherever there is a quote in the New Testament from the Old Testament, and uh, the difference of opinion is that in some cases it's not a quote so much as an illusion, so where do you draw the line? But there's about 650 quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now just think of it. Here is this little section, some derided as the little section before the maps. This New Testament has 650 quotations from the Old Testament. It shows that the Old Testament was held to be God's word very seriously and uh, was quoted widely. You may ask uh, which New Testament writers quote most frequently, and it's very interesting. You may be surprised. The one that is way out in front is the book of Hebrews with uh, about 249 quotes. And then uh, the Gospel of Matthew is second with 96 and that's not surprising because as you read it, you see again and again, he says, this happened that it might be fulfilled. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage, uh, re the Messiah. And the third uh, is, oh, I was wrong. I said, I said Hebrews. I'm sorry. It's the book of Revelation is 249 times. The book of Hebrews is the third one with 86 times. Now I've got that right. Revelation first and then Matthew and then Hebrews, and then fourthly, the book of Romans. So we have these many quotes. Most of the New Testament books quote from the Old Testament at least a few times. Exceptions would be little books like 2nd and 3rd John and, and that sort of thing. So what an amazing thing that the uh, Old Testament is so frequently quoted in the New Testament. Now, unfortunately, most scholars today many scholars, at least I should say, uh, do not take the Old Testament all that seriously. They work by the principle in uh, higher criticism that there can be no miracles, that's out. No prophecies, a prophecy, that's out. And no divine interventions. So if you apply that to the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're going to do away with a large portion of both of these collections. No miracles, no prophecies, no divine inter interventions. 
And that indicates a bias. And unfortunately, bias is an important part of interpretation. It has dominated interpretation. So that's why it's so important that we study this this uh, quarter and see what is the, the biblical method of interpreting scripture. Jesus is the divine authority and he saw the scriptures as God's authority. And uh, that might be regarded as, as a bias, but it's not. It's a basic principle that the scriptures have God's authority. They are divinely inspired. So uh, let's take a few examples. A number of these are given in the quarterly and I may refer to others. First of all, when he was tempted, how did Jesus respond? If you go to Matthew chapter 4 and uh, verses 1 to 11, you have the description of the temptations when the devil comes to Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, how did Jesus answer? It is written. In other words, he quoted. Where did he quote from? Interestingly, for the three temptations, all of the answers of Jesus come from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, 3 is the one that's uh, the answer to that first one, uh, where it says that uh, if you are the Son of God, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second one where the devil takes him up to the, to the temple to, to look down on the world. And uh, Jesus says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. And in the third temptation, where the uh, uh, very high mountain and the view of the world, and uh, Jesus is told, if you will bow down and worship me, then I'll give you all of this. Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that's from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. So three times Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy. Why did he do that? How could he do that? Because he knew the scriptures so well, knew their message, knew their spirit, and knew how to answer the devil with, when he came with these quotations. Um, another example, when Jesus was challenged about his position, if you go to uh, Matthew 22, 41 to 46, Jesus quoted from Psalm 110, and it's a very interesting quotation. It's, it's kind of complicated, and it's no wonder that he absolutely flabbergasted them. In, in chapter 22 of Matthew, verse uh, 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this was often debated as they talked about the Messiah. And uh, they, they said, well, he's the son of David. Jesus answered, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and this is verse 44, Matthew 22, verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, just follow it carefully. First, the Lord, that is, David's speaking and he's saying the Lord, that's God. 
God said to my Lord, that's David's Lord, that's the Messiah, sit at my right hand. So the Messiah is greater than David. And what was the effect on the people when Jesus applied that psalm to himself? It says in verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So, when challenged about his position, he quoted from Psalms. When challenged about theology, they said to him, what's the greatest commandment? That's not really a biblical question. It's something that they love to discuss, which are the most important. And they thought, surely we'll be able to trap, trap Jesus on this. And so in Matthew uh, 22, 34 to 40, it gives the experience. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So they asked for one, and he gave them two. And he quoted from, first, Deuteronomy 6.5, and then secondly, Leviticus 19.18. So he answered them by quoting from the, the Torah. Quoted Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord, and Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. In actual fact, he was quoting from the two tablets of the law, in a sense, or summing up the two tablets of the law. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. So love God first and foremost and above all else. Secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the second tablet of the law says, where it goes through commandments numbers 5 through 10, dealing with our relationship with, with, our, with our brothers. So... The law is to be obeyed in love, as a love response. And that's what Jesus was getting across to them here. Um, grace comes before obedience. That's important. We obey by grace. God changes our hearts and enables us to be truly obedient. We can't on our own in ourselves. Another question came to him, Matthew 5.17. Uh, here it's dealing with the perpetuity of the law. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, uh, just summing it up very quickly, that not a jot or a tittle would pass from it. That's quite intriguing because uh, the jot is the Greek form of the word yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's just like the corner of a square. So not the smallest letter of the alphabet, and the tittle was a little overhang on a number of the Hebrew letters. So not the smallest letter, or even the smallest part of a letter is going to pass from the law. And uh, so uh, in, in uh, explaining this, he was telling them the law, God's word, is uh, perpetual. It's going to be, continue to be what it has been. Uh, a fifth point, Jesus was the object of all Scripture. In uh, Luke 24, 
it talks about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And uh, the whole chapter is, is beautiful to read. But in uh, Luke 24, verses uh, 13 and following, you have the description of the road to Emmaus and how that they talked and debated. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In, in most Bibles, there's a note in the margin here, a footnote, that, that gives some of the examples of Old Testament passages that Jesus probably quoted. What a Bible study that must have been, with Jesus explaining each passage. And so uh, that's dealing with the, uh, the, the source that Jesus gave to, to answer their question. And it says that he showed that all scriptures concerned himself. They were, uh, he told them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then if you go to the end of the chapter, in verse uh, 44 and 45, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now he's included the Psalms, which is the largest book of the third division, the Kutubim. So the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings, these three collections, all of them point to Jesus. And he was able to give a Bible study in which he, he backed that up so thoroughly. A sixth point could be made how that uh, in the quarterly it talks about this as the way that Jesus used the Old Testament and made many references to historical persons and historical occasions. It shows that Jesus did not have this problem with the Old Testament that many scholars do today. He took the Old Testament literally as God's word and could quote from any part of it and explain it and, and show how it pointed to him. So uh, in the quarterly it mentions, uh, for example, uh, David, where he ate the consecrated bread uh, in Mark 10 about creation and the origin of marriage. In Luke 4, the Elijah story. Luke 11, the blood of Abel. In other words, he takes the Old Testament stories literally and completely historically reliable. And uh, so he gives explanation uh, to each of these stories based on his belief in the stories of the Old Testament, that they are not just stories, but they are true historical events. Now, the disciples learned very well from Jesus, and so it's not surprising that we have all these references to the Old Testament, quotations from the Old Testament and allusions to them. Book of Revelation, 249. The Gospel of Matthew, 96. The book of Hebrews, 86. And Romans, 74. So uh, how did the disciples and the apostles uh, regard the Old Testament? Matthew obviously took it very seriously because he keeps saying this fulfilled what Jesus did on this certain occasion. When you read the Gospel of John, uh, he makes many comparisons. Comparisons between Moses and Christ. 
Jesus is the, the new Moses, the second Moses. He really knew the law and he really explained it. So uh, Matthew and John, among the other disciples, were very strong in using the Old Testament passages, pointing them to Christ and applying them to his life. When you come to Paul, he was uh, an apostle, sort of by adoption, if you like, and uh, he was a Hebrew scholar already. He was a, a learned scholar of the scriptures. And he's the one who tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, and it's just mentioned the holy scriptures, all these holy scriptures are God's word inspired by God. And then he goes on to talk about Christ as the second Adam. So uh, Matthew, fulfillment in Jesus. John, Moses and Christ have a strong parallel. Jesus is the second Moses. Paul, Christ is the second Adam. Let's look at Romans 5 and verses uh, 12 to 19. We won't read all of them, but Romans 5, you have Paul using the Old Testament scriptures. He's come to see their application to Jesus as the Messiah. So Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, and you can read on the rest of the verses, but come down to verse 15, but the gift is not the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam sinned and, and brought condemnation to us all, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. And again, down in verse uh, uh, 18 and 19. Consequently, as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So the importance of Jesus there as the second Adam, the one who corrected the terrible mistake made by Adam and made it possible for us to be again the children of God, uh, perfect through his righteousness. Jesus and the disciples have left us an example Take the scriptures, all of the scriptures, seriously. How do you interpret them? That's what we're studying this quarter. Take every word of scripture seriously as God's word and let it affect your life. Lord, help us to do this, to take your word seriously and to follow it. Bless us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is a service of the University Parkway Seventh-day Adventist Church in Pensacola, Florida. Our weekly podcasts are recorded every Saturday morning. Bible study begins at 9.30. The sermon begins at 11. You are invited to join us. We live stream the 11 o'clock service. You can catch that broadcast at our website, universitypkwy.org or at Livestream. A library of previous messages is available on our YouTube channel and on our website. Thank you for listening.